Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook and your host for this weekly review of all the latest news and developments affecting the investment trust sector. My thanks to JP Morgan Asset Management for agreeing to sponsor the podcast, which as a result will now remain free for the foreseeable future. Moneymakers is an independent research and publishing venture with a mission to explain and inform. But I must remind you that for regulatory reasons, nothing you hear from any speaker today should be regarded as constituting individual investment advice. It's been, on the face of it, at least a positive week for equity markets and the investment trust sector. Having started the year rather limply, the Investment Trust Index put in a decent performance this week, finishing up 1.5%, with gainers outnumbering losers by nearly 3 to 1. That in turn reflected positive returns from all the largest equity markets, with the FTSE all share up more than 2%, China, notably, uh, reversing its uh, recent experience, up more than 4%, and the S&P 500 up another 1%, touching another all-time high along the way always an important factor for market sentiment. The S&P 500 is up a fraction shy of 20% since it started its latest rally, meaning it's close to being technically described as a new bull market, although that continues to reflect the dominance of a handful of very large tech and consumer stocks, the so-called Magnificent Seven. The Russell 2000 index of smaller companies in the US, by contrast, is still 20% below its all-time high, which gives you a flavour of the extreme concentration in the main index. One leading US market strategist, I can't help report, referencing the legendary Western of the same name, pointed out recently that four of the seven gunslingers who made up the Magnificent Seven finished the movie dead. Is that an omen here as well? Or are we instead set to witness a rerun of the 1999-2000 internet bubble when the market shot to ever more irrational heights on the back of a wild enthusiasm for a narrow concentration of tech stocks? Well, we'll soon find out, I guess. It's certainly a pertinent question to ask, not least in a week when we saw bond yields on both sides of the Atlantic edge higher, pretty much across the board in the UK, but only at the longer end of the curve in the US, where the yield curve is slowly disinverting, to use an ugly phrase. All but four of the 64 gilts in issue in the UK saw their prices drop this week, implying that the market may have been too optimistic about the imminence and extent of future interest rate cuts. Uh, Maybe that had something also to do with the observation by the chairman of the Office for Budget Responsibility, uh, Richard Hughes, appearing before a House of Commons committee who said that the government's forecasts last year about the outlook for public finances were beyond, I quote, a work of fiction, uh, as the government has failed to provide any details of what its spending plans would be beyond the next general election. The outlook for bonds and the global economy is one of the issues that I discussed this week in the podcast with Duncan McInnes, manager of the billion pound market cap Ruffer Investment Company, ticker RICA, the absolute return fund whose defensive positioning in the face of a widely expected recession that did not in the event materialise last year produced a disappointing negative return for its shareholders in 2023. Also this week, I talked to Richard Staveley, manager of Rockwood Strategic, ticker RKW, the third, currently the best performing, but also the smallest of three UK smaller company trusts that follow a so-called private equity light strategy, the other being Odyssean and strategic equity capital. Richard has been managing this trust since 2019, and the track record is good, 
although in the meantime he and the management of the fund have moved across from Gresham House, where it used to be, to Harwood Capital, which is also where you'll find Odyssean. More on that in a moment. After a quiet start to the week, there was a pickup in the news flow from Investment Trust this week, with six trusts reporting uh, annual or interim results, uh, the best of which came from CC Japan Income and Growth, ticker CCJI, which beat its benchmark by nearly 7% over the latest 12-month reporting period. And the most disappointing coming from Troy Income and Growth, ticker TIGT, which lagged its benchmark by a similar amount. This trust, you may recall, uh, it's proposed to be merged with another trust which is managed by Troy Asset Management, that trust being Securities Trust of Scotland, a global equity income trust. Others reporting this week included Asian Energy Impact, formerly Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact, whose shares remain suspended but where a relisting now finally appears to be imminent following the much-delayed publication of its 2022 annual and 2023 interim results. Unsurprisingly, there were lots of red ink in the first of those, with the reported NAV down nearly 50% as the board belatedly took action to mark down its largest troubled asset, an Indian solar energy project. There were quarterly updates too from eight alternative asset trusts, including Oakley Capital, ticker OCI, ICG Enterprise Trust, ticker ICGT, 3i Infrastructure, ticker 3IN, and Taylor Maritime, ticker TMI, and news of yet more consolidation in the investment trust sector, with the board of JP Morgan Multi-Asset Growth and Income, ticker MATE, mate, proposing to roll over its 70 million of assets into the much larger JP Morgan Global Growth and Income Trust, ticker JGGI. There was confirmation too from Hypnosis Songs, ticker Song, an old favourite of this podcast, of course, that its management company has declined the board's invitation to abandon its call option over the assets of the trust in the event of a sale or termination of the management contract, a provision that the board believes is hindering the realisation of the hidden value in its music royalty catalogue. That saga continues. You can find a complete summary of all the results and all the other news from the sector in our new expanded weekly email for subscribers to the Moneymaker Circle, along with our latest profile, which features JP Morgan Japanese, ticker JPJ. Some commentary on the markets from me and others, and a link to the second part of my conversation last week with John Singer, chairman of Pantheon International, the private equity trust. Having discussed the issues facing the listed private equity sector, we move on to talk about what Pantheon itself is doing to try and eliminate its persistent discount, and answer those who say that private equity net asset values are overstated. His forthright views attracted a fair deal of attention last week, and the rest is well worth listening to as well. Earlier this week, I had the chance to uh, catch up with Duncan McInnes, who has been involved in managing the Ruffer Investment Company, ticker RICA, since the middle of the 2010s. And I have to be fair to say, I think it wasn't your best year last year, Duncan. A lot of people do obviously follow what Ruffer does. Uh, you've got a market cap of around a billion. So how would you describe last year's performance or the performance over the 12 months, the end of December, in your words? Yeah, well, that's a charitable description. Jonathan, thank you. It was actually the worst year 
in the history of the investment trust. So we were down about just over 6% in NAV terms and around 10% in share price terms as the, the stock moved from a premium to a discount. And that's slightly worse than our previous worst year, which was 2018. So, which was also around sort of minus six. And I think you can spin that a couple of ways. On the one hand, we've been doing this sort of all-weather strategy for 30 years. So to have your worst years be minus six in contrast to the equity market, which has had a couple of minus 50s and some minus 20s, that's not bad, especially when over the sweep of history, you've sort of performed in line with, with equities. But then on the other hand, we tell people that we're a capital preservation fund and we're, we're about not losing money and we lost money. So, you know, I think I give us a pretty poor grade for last year. But looking forward, I think things look a little bit better. My impression from reading your materials and so on and following the performance is basically all about the macro and the fact that the uh, interest rate movement over last year uh, seems to convince people that some of the bad things you thought were going to happen haven't yet happened but still might, I guess you would say. That's a, a beautifully succinct way of describing it versus whatever I'm about to say. <laughs> um, okay, but yeah. let's just break down. So what, what worked and what didn't work last year? Well, the truth is not a lot worked, unfortunately. So I can't remember a time where it's felt like the ball sort of bounced against us as, as frequently as it did last year. In summary, I think you know, if, if you took a step back and you, you told people what was going to happen in 2023 and you told them the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England would get to 5%, the ECB would be at 4 quantitative tightening would keep going through the year, the war in Ukraine would keep going, there would be a new war in the Middle East, you'd have a banking crisis in the US, and, and China, of course, would have a, a sort of slow-motion train wreck too, economically. Uh, what do you think would happen to markets? Most people wouldn't say, well, of course, the Nasdaq would have its second best year ever and the volatility index would fall by half. So it was a pretty shocking year in terms of what happened versus market outcomes. Although, of course, we did avoid a recession, and that's pretty important. And I think that's probably where I would start. We came into the year too bearish, and, and probably in hindsight, didn't fully appreciate how bearish the consensus was. And I mean, we knew everyone was a bit bearish after 2022, which was, of course, brutal for markets. But I think we possibly underestimated that a little bit. And then as we moved through 2023, as we didn't have a recession and as we didn't have market calamity, I think people were quick to re-risk their portfolio and sort of get back on a bullish footing. And that wrong-footed our portfolio. So Basically, we're set up for recession risk and the risk of liquidity problems in markets. And we didn't have enough risk on. Uh, the growth side of our portfolio was probably slightly under-egged. We had too much protection and that resulted in a pretty disappointing NAV performance. So the whole idea of having these various protections you have in different times and we can talk about how you do that, they're meant to offset the risk that you are taking. So obviously that kind of calibration between the two didn't really work. Which of the protections were the ones that cost you most? Yeah, so I think we're looking for asymmetry uh, without wanting to get too highfalutin about things. And yeah, we try to find a, a balance of, of fear and greed or protection and growth assets in the portfolio, and hopefully they can all be asymmetric. And what we found was that we were just really struggling to find risk assets that we thought were, were asymmetric, which is why we had less of them. And we can come back to talk about that. But very broadly, I would characterize that as risk premiums were very tight across the vast majority of asset classes that we follow. Not all of them. We can come back to a few where risk premiums are attractive. Uh, but on the protection side, what hurt us was our 
pretty large position in the, the Japanese yen. That was painful. We can talk about that in more detail. The unconventional protective toolkit, which is the derivatives that we have in the portfolio. This is the bit of the portfolio that drove all of our outperformance in 2020 and in 2022. It's a mix of equity downside, credit hedges, volatility call options that, not surprisingly, in a year where markets were, were buoyant, was not required and so cost us about 3%. And then the last bit of pain was felt in the index-linked bonds, which we had uh, moderate exposure to over the course of the year. And it, it flexed up and down at points as well. And we can sort of come back to that. But really, I think the bigger point was we would have expected the protection and assets to cost us in a market that took the shape of 2023. What was disappointing was that the growth side didn't make as much. We didn't have enough in equities. They were the wrong sort of equities. As we all know, the market was quite narrowly focused around the Magnificent Seven, although it did broaden out a little bit towards the end of the year. And then also we took the decision to have a decent sized allocation to commodities, which we think are very interesting as a way of participating in economic growth. But actually, commodities didn't really do much last year. So you would think in a year where growth surprised positively because we didn't have a recession, that commodities should do well. They didn't. So that didn't really hurt us, but it didn't make us the money that we would have liked it to. Well, let's just dive into then how you reacted to all this. I mean, obviously, when things don't go the way you want, there are three things you can do. You can change what you're doing, you can stick with where you are, or you can double up on your positioning. What have you done over the course of the year? So I think the headline is that we haven't changed our view much, but we can come back to that in a second. We did a couple of opportunistic things during the year, which did help. We bought some S&P call options, so playing equities from the long side after the correction in sort of Q3. And then was it around October time when US bond yields reached their sort of almost panic levels when debt sustainability was was sort of front page news? Bond yield, US 10-year got to about 5% or touched 5% and the real yield on TIPS got up to sort of 2.3, 2.4. We took a fairly big position there, adding significantly about 15% of the portfolio into uh, medium and long-dated bonds there. So we took the portfolio duration, the sensitivity to interest rates from uh, a relatively low number of sort of 2 to 3, all the way up to uh, 7, 7.5%. And that was that was very well-timed, one of the few things in 2023 where I think we called it right on the money. And then we, we made some money there as the bonds rallied, but we, we took our profits a little bit too early. So the portfolio duration is back to where it was, that sort of 2-3 range. But we, we, we made a bit there, and that's why the, the portfolio performance in Q4 was a bit better. But if we could just zoom out a little bit, I think you know, compared to 12 months ago, what's changed we're still worried about recession and about liquidity problems emerging in markets as a result of higher interest rates and ongoing quantitative tightening. But we have to accept that the probability of a soft landing has increased. Now, who knows what the numbers are? You know, my probability doesn't mean much <laughs> uh, uh, relative to the next man's. But I think we do have to admit that it's probably gone up. I still think it's less than 50% and that a recession is far from off the table. But what is really interesting is that because markets have rallied so much, our view is that the market is now pricing in a very high probability of a soft landing and therefore very low probability of recession. So even though we have to put our hands up and say, actually, this is a little bit more likely than we thought, I think the setup in terms of asset pricing 
is more attractive today from our perspective in that there's a bigger gap between sort of perception and reality that we can hopefully arbitrage. And if that's not too much of a mouthful, that means that the bear case for asset prices is probably slightly better for some asset prices. Just one minor point. We're talking this on a Monday, but the S&P 500 had a good day on Friday. But otherwise, markets have been pretty flat so far this year. So do you think people are actually having second thoughts about this prognosis that, as you say, the consensus appears to be pretty much a full-on soft landing? But uh, you think that maybe people are having second thoughts? Yeah, I think that's fair. A couple of things you could evidence that with. So at the end of the year, the market was pricing in six Fed rate cuts in the US this year, which we thought was pretty remarkable. I think one or two of them have have come out as of today. So the fewer rate cuts priced in. And then you look at the equity side. So the S&P hit all-time highs on Friday. Mark that one up for the bulls. Um, But but interestingly, the S&P is at all-time highs. The Russell 2000 is still in a bear market. Yeah, that's never happened before. So the Russell's still 20% off its high. And I think I saw a chart this morning that showed if you look sector by sector, only technology is at all-time highs. All the other sectors are not at all-time highs. So there's some messages there. I think that under the bonnet, things maybe aren't quite as rosy as the index level would, would suggest. And that's something that uh, Stan Druckenmiller has always used as an economic indicator. In fact, you know the internals of the stock market, the, the sectoral performances give you messages as to how the economy is doing. And if that's right, then it's giving you a message that maybe isn't that positive. Certainly not as positive as the Goldman Sachs recession probability, which I think at one point was as high as 50 or 60%, has dropped all the way down to to 15%, which is as low as it's ever been. So Goldman says recession risk is completely off the table. Yeah, well, that is a remarkable figure, as you say, 15% recession probability, given all that's happened, given what's happened to interest rates in the past couple of years and historical precedent and all those good things. And we know it's an election year. It's an election year everywhere. You know, Whatever that crazy stat is, about 60 or 70% of the global population is going to go to the ballot box, <laughs> I think, that this year. But it's an election year in the US and the UK, most specifically to us. And so there's a huge incentive upon the incumbent governments to keep the pump primed in terms of stimulus to keep the show on the road through the election so that they can hang on to power. But uh, 2008 was an election year as well. (laughs) So, you know, events, dear boy, sometimes get in the way of best laid plans. Just on one other point about last year before we move on, then one of the disappointments probably for you was that the shares did move out to a discount. It has happened in the past, obviously, but it go out to discount, which implies that... um, well, perhaps implies that not only could investors see the NAV going down, but they could also, you know, maybe have not have as much confidence in what you're doing as they've had at other points in the past. You've been buying back shares, of course. The trust has been buying back quite a lot of shares, I think. How do you interpret the move to a discount of around, well, it's around 5%? Yeah, we've bought back some shares. I think it's fair to say that that will be on. It's a board decision, not a rougher decision, but the chairman and the board have been pretty explicit in terms of their policy. And there'll probably be more on that in the upcoming interim results. I think you're right to pick up on the fact that RICA trading on a premium or a discount is often a sentiment indicator on both the market and on Ruffer. <laughs> so when Ruffer's relative performance has been poor, like it was in 2023, the shares have tended to trade on a discount. But also, if you look at history, and we, we do have this sort of chart, there's been four periods over the 20-odd years that Ruffer Investment Company's been around that we've traded on a discount. It's always been at a period of poor Ruffer relative performance towards the end of a cycle before 
a relatively large market sort of inflection point. And then you're right, at those points where Ruffer's performance has been pretty good through crises, the investment trust shareholders get a little bit of a, a double whammy because the share price has reverted to a premium in those previous instances. Now, it's so the sample size of only three or four instances of a discount, so you can't hang your hat on it, but I think it makes a lot of intuitive sense. And whilst the shares are being repurchased by the board, then that's, that's accretive to the NEV as well, as we all know. Let's just look at your portfolio then and say where it is now. Virtually half the portfolio is in short-dated government bonds, which is a pretty hunkered down position to be. Admittedly, you're getting paid for that, which is nice, of course. What are your expectations for the yield curve then and whether or not you might be moving that bond exposure around as you did last year briefly when you went into longer duration bonds for a while? Yeah, well, the yield curve is pretty inverted right now. You've got 5% rates at the at the front end, and then you've got, I'm talking about the US here, 5% at the front end and 4 at the back end and the middle. So the yield curve being inverted has historically been an incredibly accurate predictor of oncoming recession. In fact, I think there's been no false signals ever. So first of all, that adds to the case that we think recession risk remains very much live. But also it would suggest that you're not necessarily getting paid for moving further out the yield curve. And so that's why we find ourselves at the shorter end. Now, that wasn't the case back in October, like I said, when the US 10-year backed up to 5%. We thought that was very attractive. I wrote an article for the rougher green line uh, pretty much exactly at the top, uh, which was nice, saying that for the first time in 15 years, the buy and hold returns for bonds looked attractive. This is 5%, 10-year and 2.5% real yield. So the buy and hold returns looked good, but you also had this cyclical opportunity where if we moved into a recession, then the Fed would cut rates, bond yields would come down, and so you could sort of front load your returns in those bonds that was right, and you know we, we made a bit of money in Q4 on that. But I think from the current bond yield, it's a much more even bet. You know, the US 10-year at sort of four and a bit is okay. It might work as a recession hedge, but there's a lot of rate cuts already priced into the market, as we mentioned earlier. So it's just, I don't think you're really getting sufficiently incentivized to move out, out the yield curve when you can get 5.25 in, in the very short end. But as at the end of December, I think you still have nearly 7% in long-dated index link yields. So... You're taking a slightly different view there. Yeah, so they're the long-dated inflation-linked bonds, which we're sort of synonymous with, have been in the portfolio for a very long time, since about 2009. The size of that position has flexed up and down. It's actually towards the low end right now. It's been as high as 15% in, in my time at Ruffer, which is since 2012. Those speak to the longer-term story which we, you know, we, should, we shouldn't get away from when we're talking about these cyclical risks of recession, that we still think we're in this world of a new regime of higher inflation, higher inflation volatility, financial repression, uh, which I'm sure your listeners are very familiar with. In that world, then the long-dated inflation-like bonds are going to be one of the best assets. So we have that as a sort of structural position that we occasionally flex the size of. And I should also remind listeners that we can hedge the duration in those. Uh, and we did that very effectively in 2022. We did it less effectively last year. Okay. I have to ask you also about, uh, you've got a position in gold, yes. nearly uh, 4% or so, according to the latest fact sheet anyway. But you haven't remade your bet on Bitcoin, even though that would have made you a lot of money last year, if you had. Just tell us about gold and uh, 
if you have any lingering thoughts about Bitcoin. I thought you renounced it after. I can hear the compliance sirens going. So we've got about 4% in gold at the moment, which is sort of middle to low end of our historical weighting, but it's all in the mining companies. And I think gold is, is a really interesting one to talk about because it's frustrated everyone. I think the bulls are frustrated that it's kissed all-time highs a couple of times and bounced off in, in dollars. It's all-time highs in every other currency. But you know, we, we've had this amazing environment in terms of 40-year highs of realized inflation, in terms of two global wars. So why has gold not done better? And then the bears would say, well, real interest rates have risen a huge amount in the last few years. The sort of relative pricing to tips would tell you that gold should be at 1500 not at 2000 So there's a real bull and bear tension there. And I think one of the ways to resolve that is to own it via the miners because the gold in the ground via the mining reserves is vastly cheaper than it is out of the ground. The gold mining companies are very lowly valued relative to history on all sorts of metrics like price to nav or price to cash flow and so on. And as long as you own the the assets in relatively safe jurisdictions, which can sometimes be an issue in, in that industry, then I think the prospective returns for gold mining equities are very attractive and they have the potential to act as a bit of a crisis hedge and an inflation hedge and so on. So, yeah, very optimistic on gold. And in fact, my, my stat on the gold mining industry is that the entire gold mining industry is about $320 billion market cap, which is smaller than Home Depot, <laughs> the sort of US equivalent of B&Q. So I think there's pretty uh, attractive prospective returns to come from gold. And on Bitcoin, all I would say is that I saw parallels. We're speaking here a week after the ETF has been approved and and launched. I saw parallels with the Coinbase IPO. So the Coinbase IPO in April 2021 was when Ruffer exited our position and we exited an average of about $50,000. So here we are three years later and the price is still below where we exited But the Coinbase IPO was a huge step forward in terms of legitimizing and bringing crypto into the mainstream. It was a huge event in the maturation of that industry. And yet it also marked the top cyclically because people got very excited and front ran it. It was a sort of better to travel than arrive situation. And I I saw and felt similarly with the Bitcoin ETF and, you know, sort of buy the rumor, sell the fact, I guess is the other way of saying that. And so far, that seems to be about right, because I think we're down about 10, 15% since the approval of the ETF. I watch the flows with interest, because I think it's intriguing to see how much money goes in there. But when there's just the idea of a Bitcoin ETF, the bulls can paint a picture of tens of billions of flows, the institutions are coming, etc., etc. When there is the reality of an ETF, those flows actually have to appear. <laughs> so I think there's quite a high hurdle in terms of the optimism that many people have built into the prospects of a Bitcoin ETF. Do you think, though, that maybe one of the reasons why gold hasn't done better is that for some people, at least, Bitcoin has been regarded as an alternative? Yeah, definitely. I think that's undeniable. And and JP Morgan, I don't know if they still do, but they used to produce some pretty good charts to this effect, showing that flows were being redirected away from gold and towards crypto. So looking again overall at your portfolio then, if there's one thing perhaps that could flex, if you like, could change and have the most dramatic effect, what would that be? In that context, I was going to ask you about your position or the way you've structured your portfolio so that you do have a strong view that the yen, 
which has been incredibly weak, contrary to what you expected, I think, or hoped. Uh, <laughs> yes. Obviously could change course. There's a lot of interesting things going on in Japan. You've still got a significant exposure to the yen, or however you like to phrase yeah. it. What are your expectations for that now? Have you any reason to change your thesis yeah. on that? So the yen, I shudder to think that maybe six months ago, we talked about this and I probably said exactly the same thing. So we've got about 15% in the yen and we have another 10 to 15% in option exposure, so call options on the value of the yen. And now the structural case for the yen is that it's on a, a roughly 50-year low on valuations. Now, valuing currencies is very difficult, but you can look at purchasing power parity, real effective exchange rate, all these sort of complicated things. Or you can look at the Big Mac Index, uh, which is a nice and simple one, or you can speak to anyone who's been to Japan and they can tell you it's never been this cheap. So we know the yen is cheap, but that doesn't really help you in terms of a catalyst. We have a catalyst, however, in the end of the extreme monetary policy divergence that we've seen between Japan and the West. So Japan is effectively still easing with negative rates, and yield curve control, which are they are they're tapering off, and the rest of the world's of course been tightening dramatically. So the interest rate differentials is incredibly wide. They're telling you that that policy is coming to an end. You can see the evidence that the, the policy needs to come to an end. The inflation rate in Japan is currently higher than it is in the U.S., and yet they have negative rates, and the U.S. has plus five. The uh, wage growth is higher in Japan than it is in Europe. And just this morning, you had Japanese officials coming out calling for more wage increases. So it seems like an unsustainable situation and one that we think will will come to an end sooner rather than later. Now, we did think it would end in the latter half of last year. We're now (laughs) hopeful it will happen in the first half of this year. But one big metric coming in March is the Shinto wage negotiations, which is a very hotly anticipated number, which we expect to show positive wage growth. And then the last element of the yen bull case, which is something that Jonathan Ruffer has written eloquently about in his October 2023 review, is that the yen is a safe haven currency that people panic into in a crisis. It's always been a safe haven currency, but the reason that this effect is sort of turbocharged is because it's used as a funding currency. So you can still borrow at zero rates in Japan. And if you're a speculator, that's attractive. And you go and borrow in yen, take your assets elsewhere and speculate in whatever, the Brazilian real or you know, NASDAQ stocks. But if and when there is a crisis and your risk manager gives you the tap on the shoulder, you need to sell your assets and you need to go and buy back yen to pay back your loan. And so you get this sort of dynamic where people panic back into the yen. We also know that the Japanese nationals have this huge external surplus when interest rates increase domestically and because it's a pretty homogenous society, one that is different to authority. If if authority tells them to bring (laughs) assets back, then Mrs. Watanabe might well do that. Uh, So we have this dynamic where potentially you can have a lot of money trying to get back through a fairly small door, and that can be rocket fuel for the yen. So to put some numbers on that, in the financial crisis, the yen rose 48% against sterling which uh, I had to go to Bloomberg and double-check that when I first heard it because it didn't sound real, but it it did happen. The yen is starting from today at a much, much lower valuation than it was in the financial crisis. If we saw a 20% rise in the yen, it would only get it back to where it was at the start of 2023. So we see the potential for the yen in the right circumstances to do extraordinarily well. 
But even in not the right sort of circumstances, just policy normalization from the Bank of Japan, you could see a 10 to 20% move in the end easily. And when it's as big a position as we have, uh, almost 30%, then that can be really quite meaningful for the NAV. Well, this exposure is through the currencies and derivatives. It's not through owning Japanese equities or anything like that. I notice yeah. you've got a position in China as well, which is interesting. Not everybody's favourite market last year. I wish that Chinese position was the Japanese position. That would have been much more helpful last year. So what is the thinking behind that? China's obviously got some economic problems. Is this another potential offset to something else happening or is it conviction yeah. in the Chinese stock market? First of all, we have to put our hands up and say that's not been great. It's been probably the worst type of equity risk to take in the last year or so. When I talked earlier about us being uncomfortably in the consensus at the start of last year, there isn't much more counter consensus, more unloved, uh, with a higher risk premium than Chinese equities. Now, absolutely, some people might say, well, Chinese equities deserve a very high risk premium, but we are talking about an extraordinarily wide equity risk premium in China right now, with sentiment absolutely on the floor. And it is hard to imagine a sort of hunky-dory global economic growth outcome that doesn't involve at least a thawing of US-China relations and Chinese capital markets. Because as we all know, China's growth has been the sort of global engine of growth for the last decade or so. The idea that Cold War II comes to pass and China gets fully annexed would suggest that, you know, I think the S&P is in quite a lot of trouble in that world uh, as well. So it's a little bit of a what if we're wrong position because we do have this bearish economic view. We do ultimately believe in sort of deglobalization. But if we are wrong on that, then the catch up trade is going to be in China tech rather than US tech. Yeah, I can see that argument. Let's be interested to see whether it plays out or not. You should emphasize it is only 4% of the portfolio. but And this is you know, a sentiment gauge. It's the 4% that I probably get asked about the most at the moment. <laughs> okay. I mean, history suggests that it's often unwise, should we say, to bid against the US stock market. We have had this extraordinary period when it has been dominated, as you say, by just a few companies around whom there is this, for some people, exciting narrative. And you have consistently had a hugely underweight position in the, in the US equities, if I can put it that way. Do you ever think, well, maybe we haven't quite got that right? So a couple of things. I don't want to come across as too sort of curmudgeonly on the US tech stocks. We've owned Google and Microsoft back in 2012 to 2015. We owned Apple from 2016 to 2018. We owned uh, Meta at various points in the last sort of three or four years. And last year we had Meta and Amazon. So we do own these stocks sometimes, but what we don't do is have them in the extraordinary weightings that they currently command in the indexes. So your question alludes to the overweight and underweight. Well, the US is two thirds now of the global equity indexes. And of course, the, the Magnificent Seven are a very large chunk of that. So we are now at a stage where if you do have a benchmark weighting in these stocks, you're running a pretty concentrated portfolio. So our underweight to the US has been unhelpful for sure. But we've also had a big weighting in Japan over time and Japan has done uh, pretty much just as well. The issue with the US going forward, I think, is that it's sort of priced for perfection. Uh, I don't want to be too sort of melodramatic about that. But if you look at what the market is forecasting for next year, I already mentioned six Fed rate cuts. Now, I think six Fed rate cuts would suggest that the bond market is worried about recession. The bond market is saying that the Fed is going to have to cut every single meeting after March 
for the rest of the year. That does not sound like a bullish scenario. But then you look at the S&P, it's trading on 20 times earnings, it's trading on sort of very high CAPE or you know market cap to GDP or Q ratio type valuations. But even if you ignore those long-term ones, you have a 20 times next year's earnings, revenue forecast to grow at five, earnings forecast to grow at 11, and then 12% the year after. That is really quite optimistic and totally incongruous compared to what the bond market is telling you. So I think there's quite a lot of cakeism going on there in the market, that the equity market's telling you soft landing and the bond market's telling you recession. And that's actually meant that you've been able to make money in both <laughs> for the last six months. And I think we will look back and see that that is a relatively anomalous moment because looking forward, I think you can really only make money in one of those two. So if you make money in the bond market because it's already priced in so many cuts, you basically need a recession or something pretty bad to happen from here. And of course, then the equity market would hate that. But if the equity market delivers on what's priced in there, all those earnings growth numbers that I just mentioned, then that sounds like the economy has been really robust. So the bond market probably has to price out some of the cuts that it's currently factoring in. So if you make money in the equities, you lose money in the bonds or the reverse. And that's why I think our sort of pretty differentiated portfolio construction and our criticisms of the 60-40, I think, have become valid again. So having been very critical of the 60-40 in 2021, and then it had its worst year in a century in 22, by the end of 22, it was sort of more agnostic. You know, bond yields had got up to four. A lot of pain had already been felt. Clearly more pain was felt in 23, but the 60-40 had a great year last year. And so you've got this weird situation where I think people were potentially taught lessons in 2022 about how to construct a portfolio, the changes that you have to make as a result of inflation and, and assumed correlations. And then the rally in 2023 has told people that they can forget all the lessons that they learned <laughs> in 2022. And, and I think that's a mistake. And to come back to your earlier comment about economic data so far this year, we've had two positive inflation surprises, haven't we, in the in the US and the UK, just suggesting that maybe, just maybe, inflation is going to be stickier and the last mile is going to be very hard to grind out. And I think that is not priced in. So final thought for 2024, let's just think about the upside. And if you're right, and we're going to get a flex of some sort, we don't know what it's going to be, but in other words, the consensus is wrong. And we look back at history in Ruffer, but given your sort of general style of positioning, what's the most that you think you might make out of Ruffer this year? So let's have a dream <laughs> scenario where you, your discount disappears, okay? So that's going to give you 5% and you're upset. What, I mean, 10% would be a very good year for you, would it? In the right scenario, I think we could do a bit better than that. But yeah, I think that's a decent starting point. And then, of course, you have the move from a discount to a premium on top of that. But it's more the, the correlation benefits that we bring. So I think when I look at... A lot of portfolios today, that they're incredibly homogenous. And as we showed in 22 for the better and 23 for the worse, we do genuinely have a portfolio construction that is properly uncorrelated and therefore having a little bit of us in your portfolio. Because if we're right, almost everything else in your portfolio is going to be wrong. Exactly. That's a very valid point to make. It's not just about the absolute numbers. It's about how it fits with how you're positioned. Absolutely right. So that was uh, Duncan McInnes, the manager of the Ruffer Investment Company, ticker RICA, reflecting on a not-so-good year and hoping for a much better one this year.
I began my conversation with Richard Staveley, the manager of Rockwood Strategic, by asking him to summarise what the trust does and how what he does compares with the two other trusts that follow a similar, what's sometimes called private equity light approach in their search for outperformance in the UK smaller companies sector. Thanks very much, Jonathan, for having me on. It's interesting you mentioned those two trusts because I think all three funds have actually been doing a really good job for shareholders in a bigger small companies sector. And it's interesting that our approaches, which are similar in as much it's a sort of more focused portfolio in a very large market. So picking best ideas, I think all three funds have roughly 20. I've got 19 at the moment. I think there is differences between the, the handful of that are taking this more engaged approach and the main thing with Rockwood is, is that we focus on the very smallest companies. So all three do focus on UK smaller companies, but Rockwood is everything under 250 million. But for our, what we call our core holdings, they're typically below 150 million. And for those that don't know about Rockwood, we're basically looking for very undervalued small companies. We focus on free cash flow. We're an out and out value investor and typically recovery investor as well, but not exclusively. And I think at that smaller end, it really is just a sort of barren space. Even those guys that you looked at, you know, very rarely get down to below 150 million for those larger trusts. And I think the three of us are benefiting from the fact that some of the much bigger institutions in the market, and these would be the Black Rocks, the Hendersons, the Aberdeens, the Aberforths, these guys have got very, very big books of business. And it just basically doesn't work for them to go down into these lowest companies. They can't get the liquidity if they have open-ended funds, which they run alongside their investment trusts, which they often have almost identical portfolios in. So they need to sort of keep the liquidity up. And secondly, just a mathematical factor is they just can't buy enough of it to make a difference to their much larger portfolios. The interesting thing is, is that if the, we had the most recent index data from those professors, at Elroy, Dimson and Marsh, and it's unarguable that the smallest companies actually do the very best. So what's called the Deutsche Numis Index, which is the bottom 10% of the UK market. I mean, it has done a, a fantastic job for investors over the long term. Since 1955, uh, you know, a pound would have got you up to over £9,000 in the bottom 10% of the market. But if you pick just the bottom 1,000 companies by size, which was originally about 2% of the total market, that's up 22,000%. So this size effect does run all the way through from the very smallest to the small, to the mids, to the large. And we think that quite a lot of investors, where they are interested in owning some UK small cap exposure, they've got to be careful they're not actually owning the smallest companies anymore. They're holding mids, mid caps and much larger billion pound companies. I think the second thing is, is that this value focus means that the types of companies we're investing in do have sorts of characteristics that people in the real world, not necessarily markets, uh, in terms of trade buyers, strategic buyers and private equity are attracted to. And as a result, the sort of tempo of takeovers it has been high, I think, in all three of those funds over the last couple of years. And when you've only got a few holdings and you manage to pick the ones that do end up getting a control premium after they've been sorted out and turned around, you know, that can have an outsized impact on your portfolio versus if you are a typical small cap fund with maybe 60, 70, 80 holdings, you get a few takeovers. It's nice to have, but it doesn't really jettison performance into the top decile. 
Well, let's just pick up on a couple of those points then. I mean, you talk about the small cap effect, if you like, the small cap premium you get. But of course, you can't own all the small cap companies because there are lots of them. There's no such thing as an index fund for these smallest companies. So that's both an opportunity, but also a constraint. The average numbers, you will be very difficult for anybody to buy the whole small cap universe at one point. So you have to be selective. And then you're therefore more into individual stock risk, aren't you? I guess that your story will be that by focusing on just a few companies, you can at least hope to uh, reduce that uh, specific stock risk by due diligence. Yeah, exactly. So there's two points here. This firstly is the sort of business school explanations of how many stocks you need to be diversified. And, you know, you can take your report from how many years. I think the lowest, they some people say, is only 13, which seems quite low to me. But I think we are diversified, just not as broadly diversified as these managers are that are very worried about their performance versus an index, rather than the medium term returns they can generate from the actual investments therein. And essentially, what you need is experience and network and understanding of this type of asset class, both the actors and the companies within it, in order to prosecute your your strategy. Now, for Rockwood, the way we narrow it down is primarily through two ways. It's firstly valuation, and it's secondly, it's mean reversion potential. So we're, we're classically mean reversionists in as much as we look for companies where they used to be profitable, much more profitable, and things were going well, but then essentially they've fallen on hard times within that small cap space. And typically people will move on and get upset and derate the companies materially, may lead even to some financial stress. But if we can identify that they haven't become a kind of value trap, you know, a bowler hat maker, but they have a reason why they can actually mean revert and get the profits back, that's what attracts us. Because then what we do is we typically take a large stake in our top seven, our core holdings, we have a board position or board representation on six of the seven. And in all seven, we have at least 5% of the shares. That allows us then to heavily influence the direction of travel and the focus on rebuilding shareholder value. And that might mean as, as simple as, well, you really need to get rid of this division. I know you're trying to hang on to it or you think you can turn it around, but you can't. We need to realise the capital from that, prepare the balance sheet, move on. Or B, the finance director, frankly, isn't up to scratch. Or indeed, the board oversight's not good enough and that sort of thing. So we get up and we engage with both the board, the management team and also other shareholders. And that's really critical. We will reach out to other shareholders that are investing in this world of UK small cap and say, look, We'd like to propose this person to join the board. Do you know him? Would you like to meet him? We think it'd be really good. We think he'd be perfect to help sort this out. We might go, we think that the finance director should go. And then when we have the time, because we've only got 20 holdings, unlike some of the other houses, we have many, we can go and engage in them, speak not just on behalf of ourselves and our state, but speak with confidence that other shareholders are roughly in the same place about the requirement to focus. What you then get eventually is once you've put that in place, and this is why I absolutely love running an investment trust now. I, I was open-ended fund manager for many, many years, but you have the real ability to know that you've got the capital retained over a proper holding period for a proper turnaround and a proper small cap holding period. You're not going to get those redemptions, which are affecting so many of the other UK small company managers. So you can then invest knowing that over that three to five year period, profits can be recovered by their own internal self-help. And then that process tends to lead itself to a re-rating and then potentially eventually M&A unless the market wants to sort of buy it off you now. It's been stabilized and take it to the next level. 
Isn't one of the issues, though, with small cap, as you said, we know that the institutions and large institutions don't really play in that market anymore. And a lot of these trusts are neglected. There isn't much liquidity. So to some extent, you are dependent on M&A or corporate activity to actually realize the value of the things that you've done that are good, because you won't necessarily find the market coming in to reward you because the buyers aren't there. Would that be a fair comment? Uh, Yeah. And this is the thing. I'm up for embracing that. I mean, I'm sort of saying... And I started saying this at the back end of last year, but I do believe it. I think 80% of our holdings will require some form of exit in a transaction. And I'm only in the back of my mind relying on probably about 20% of the portfolio to be bought by other fund managers after it's gone up a lot. If I went back 20 years ago, every stock I bought, I'd be buying thinking that another fund manager would buy it after me after it's gone up a lot because they like the momentum and they, you know, maybe I'm selling it too early because of the valuation or whatever. But you can rely on the liquidity. What that means is that requires two things. It firstly requires when you get into it in the first place, you have to be sure it's not going to be a lobster pot, as I call it, where you just stuck forever in this liquid position. And that requires due diligence up front about the likelihood of that business having interested trade parties, its strategic attractions to other uh, companies in its sector or that, you know, that might benefit from owning it. And equally, we can, and this is where Harwood's very helpful, is because we have our own private equity funds as well. We know which sectors are being consolidated, which sectors private equity are interested in, what they might want to pay. And, you know, that's been paying off to great effect. Just literally last year, we had uh, five takeovers. And this is in a fund that started the year with 18 holdings. Uh, The biggest right at the start of the year was a company called Crestcheck. We ended up making a 30% IRR on that. Finsbury Foods was taken over by private equity. Again, we made a 33% IRR on that. On the market.com, interesting here. And this is the point, you know, we worry about the liquidity in the UK market. But then CoStar, who have made the bid for on the market, are a $26 billion US NASDAQ listed company. And we've made a 94% IRR on that stock. And the point is that they are looking, people are looking at what's left of the UK stock market, of which there are still hundreds of businesses in the small cap arena. But they're looking at it and they can see the value. So as long as you've done your work right and you're not buying faddish stocks or businesses that haven't proven out their business models or what I call science stocks, which are the biotech ones where you just have no real idea whether there's true value or not. You can buy good businesses that have been around for some time, fallen on hard times and find a repair and then find a strategic solution for them. Does that mean you actually actively shop some of these situations around? using your private equity contact? On occasion, we will say, we'll, we'll approach companies and we'll say we'd be up for selling or we get all the other way around inbound. And we say, look, we finish this up. But normally, most of the situations that the board, the other shareholders, you know, that it comes to a natural point for some of these businesses that actually they should move off market. The problem is, is there's not enough companies coming back on the other side on the IPO front. I mean, it's an absolute barren desert for IPO investors, which will need to start rebuilding at some point. Otherwise, there won't be anything left. I mean, there are some UK small cap managers that have over 100 holdings. If you look now, the deterioration in number of holdings is pretty scary for a manager that has over 100 holdings in small cap now. I've got the latest data. The the FTSE small cap X investment trust has only got 114 companies in it. FTSE fledgling only 29. And the A market is down to 650 stocks. It was over 1,600 stocks in 2007, 2008. 
So I, I sort of please, we only have to find a handful each year, probably three or four maybe new holdings a year in a, in a normal year to add out of those hundreds. Obviously, we've heard noises from the Chancellor. We've heard other people campaigning for some reform of the UK equity market to try and make it a more attractive place for companies to list and then to try and allow them to achieve better valuations compared to other markets. You'd like to see that happen, obviously, but are you realistically thinking that that isn't going to happen? It's not going to influence what you do anyway. You're going to carry on doing what you do. I think the point I'm kind of making is that if it doesn't, this approach that we've got can still deliver returns. We're mostly invested in AIM. Last year, AIM was down 7%. And Rockwood was the number one small cap fund investment trust in 2023. And we were 18.8%. So the point is, we think our strategy can still deliver if it remains difficult. But we actually want a healthy market. And I was one of the signatories, as was Christopher Mills, to the letter to the Times and the government regarding the British ISA. We think that would be a great initiative and could shift quite a lot of interest into UK shares. I also think there should be massive pressure put on the government around the guidance and maybe even the legislation. It may need primary legislation around public sector pension funds. And if you think about it, public sector workers have been benefited from the taxpayers' money to pay their bills. They get very good, and we all know, relatively gold-plated pensions relative to the private sector. You know, it doesn't seem completely unrealistic to request them to invest in a few British shares as a sort of matter of course in order to keep our country healthy and capital markets healthy so that money can then pay more taxes to keep the public sector going. You may or may not know, Jonathan, but the House of Commons pension scheme has only 1.8% of the fund in UK shares. It's sort of slightly scandalous, in my opinion. And that's quite a small scheme compared to university professors who's, who want companies to then back their students' PhD products or indeed some of the other schemes. I'd like to see something in CGT as well. I'm not a tax expert, but I think there is a scope to give some CGT tax breaks for investing in UK small companies. And I think that would bring a lot of money in. There's a huge section of people that are really quite seriously wealthy that you know, things like their ISA limit and their SIPs limits, they stopped worrying about years ago. And that money often is going into property and other asset classes. Quite a lot of that money could come into supporting smaller British businesses. So I'd like to see some sort of breaks there. But it's not just government. I think it flips the other side too. So institutions, so the fund managers themselves, we need to ease up on some of the mantras that have been placed upon publicly listed UK businesses in recent years. You know, I'm quite happy to say it, you know, some of the ESG, uh, kind of how ESG is managed by some of the larger institutions, you often get, I meet them, you know, I meet small cap fund managers who say, yeah, we kind of wanted that to happen, or we were happy with these people being paid a serious amount of money for creating a lot of shareholder value. But it's our voting department that do that. And They take a lot of time out of the British PLC listed company uh, management team's time dealing with all these issues. And it's got slightly perverted away from the, the general sense that we're trying to create value for shareholders, for savers, for pensioners. And things like being able to be paid a decent amount of money for doing a decent job is critical. Otherwise, people are going to just keep going, well, actually, I'm quite happy being taken over because I'll probably earn more money working for private equity. Actually, why should I bother listing? Because if I stay in a private world, I'll probably end up making more money. 
The other piece is the advisor piece, which is quite difficult to do because we all know they're pretty rapacious and will do whatever it takes to get through to the Christmas bonus. But if you take like the IPO market, you know, everyone's sort of bemoaning the market at the moment. And one thing I am nervous about is too many people are kind of just focusing on the structural currently and saying it's all structural when there are clearly cyclical elements which will recover and things will bounce back. But it was only 2021 that loads of companies were IPOing, you know, left, right and centre. The quality of those and the overvaluation of those was awful, frankly. And, you know, a lot of people have lost a lot of money. And I think some of the advisors, particularly the boards, the owners of those advisors need to have a higher quality threshold so that confidence can genuinely be brought back in why you should back an IPO and not definitely going to lose money. And, you know, apart from the first few days, and then we can build on that. And that will help the cycle. So there's basically a lot that could be done. I mean, I would say some of those uh, wealthier people, they still can't get tax breaks on venture capital, for example, but uh, not later stages. And uh, AIM, there's still some advantages for companies to list there. Just one particular question about AIM. Obviously, it has done very poorly the last couple of years. I had a very good run before that, mind you. And there are some, as I say, you know, business property relief and all those kind of things. Do you think there is any risk of that regime if we have a change in government? I just don't think so. I think there's two things. First of all, the Labour Party seems to me to have moved to the right. I think that's a pretty safe thing to say following the Corbyn era. And I think that everything that's coming out of the Labour Party would suggest that they understand that we need to have a healthy, definitely small company, British market, both private and public. So I, I think I'm more comfortable than I was, say, a couple of years ago, that, that, that say, the aim reliefs were on the, on the, chop, on the chopping block. So I'm relaxed about that. I think the aim performance has been terrible. One shouldn't forget, though, that because of its easier uh, conditions for listing, it does tend to get a kind of outsized amount of froth when it's frothy. So its long-term performance has been ruined by two things. Well, not ruined, it's been very good overall. But in the TMT bubble, just a load of nonsense floated and that's all disappeared off. And then if you remember, I mean, it feels ages ago now, but the mining and resources bubble also created a load of nonsense as well. So it's quite easy to avoid quite a lot of the dross. And hidden in there are some absolutely cracking businesses that are just either too small, uh, you know, dominate their little niches, have the scope to build and go international, uh, lots of decent and normal businesses. And I think one of the key things is, is the private investor who wants to buy individual stocks rather than all the great investment trusts you talk about. But, you know, they typically lend themselves to wanting things that they can sort of make outsized returns, you know, five, ten. They want something, oh, if I have a little small cap, it's got to be something that can change the world. Rockwood could be more different than that. We literally want to buy a stock that can double over three to five years through a normalization of profits and a normalization of rating. And then if you get a premium at the end of that, that's great. A three to five year doubler, is 15% CAGR to 25% CAGR. And, and that would be amazing if you look back on it and go, I've been doing that with my money. But so many people seem to sort of chase unrealistic return profiles. And if we keep doing sort of roughly 15%, obviously we're doing slightly better than that of late, you know, we should be top of the pops and remain top of the pops in the sector. Well, of course, given all those issues that we've just discussed, which make it sound very negative in a way, but potential for change, maybe. But you've still done pretty well, haven't you? I mean, you said, in other words, the strategy does work. You've so far met your target of 15% return over, over the time you've been in charge anyway. Share price has done well since then. 
So what's been the biggest contributor? Has it actually been the sort of M&A exits? They're the ones that have delivered the 20 plus percent return IRR that you've made actually over the last few years. There's definitely a good contribution from the takeovers. I haven't actually disaggregated it myself. I don't have that kind of whizzy system because we're at Harwood and, you know, it's a smaller business. But I would say that there has been a decent amount of the attribution from the takeovers. That said, there's also quite a lot of unrealized profits in the portfolio. So something like an MC Saatchi was sitting on a very significant unrealized return over the last two to three years. Our MPLC, our largest, is also the same. And last year, a classic stock we bought with a company called Filtronic. And this is kind of where it all fills together because Filtronic actually was a darling stock in the TMT bubble. And I followed it for 25 years and it sold off all its stuff and became very small, became a 20 million pound business and everyone lost interest in it. And actually, it's now run in some very nice and profitable little niches, but a huge brand new market's opened up for them in low earth orbiting satellites, which Mr. Musk has created through his game changing re-entry rockets, which have changed the economics of space. And that business, you know, last year, we started buying that at 12 and a half P and it's finishing the year at 23 P. And that's in a year when the markets are down. So we are very pleased with the performance, but it'll be a good mix of the takeouts linked to, but they typically come at the end of the process. One thing I would mention is because some people will be looking at the Rockwood share price chart and going, oh, you know, I've missed it or, you know, some things are there, but they'll come back. The point with the takeovers is you lock in the NAV growth. So we've locked in City Pub Company, which got, we got a big takeout of it from made. 1.8 1.8 times our money and a 48% IRR. We've locked in Finsbury Foods and on, on the market.com. So it's really about the kind of how well can we redeploy the capital from those takeovers. We're currently sitting on 17% look through cash. And frankly, because of all these other structural issues, it's a bit like, you know, actually, I'm not a massive fan of this phrase, but it is a little bit like a kid in a sweet shop. And as much as there are lots of things we could choose to execute on. And as you mentioned earlier, up, we, we do a lot of due diligence to try and de-risk pick which couple or two or three that we want to really focus on for that redeployment. OK, so looking at the trust itself, you obviously have been putting together this good track record. But the trust itself remains quite small by uh, investment trust standards. You have, therefore, potentially the same liquidity issues a lot of other smaller companies themselves have. So I dare say you've got some ambitions to grow the trust. That must be uh, on your agenda because it is of the size. Do you have a wish list of the size you'd like to be? Yes, we do. And we definitely want to grow because we think the opportunities, as I mentioned at the start, is companies that are capitalized under 250 million. And the maths, it's quite simplistic, Jonathan, but basically our capacity is defined by the market that we address. So if we want to say have 10% in a company so that we have a proper stake and we can influence the outcome, then if it's a 200 million pound company, we have to have a 20 million pound stake. So at the moment, I can see 200 million pound companies, 150 million pound companies that are opportunities, but 15 million quid would be 25% of Rockwood. So with some of the opportunities that are in our universe, we can't really do on our own what we want to do. So we genuinely want to grow for that reason. What I can say is the maths is brilliant because last year was actually what we hoped to be a kind of an average year for us over the next few years. That's pretty ambitious, I have to say. But last year we reached NAV in April. And since then we issued 10.6% of new shares in new share capital. Uh, and actually we've already issued another 1% of the fund so far in January. 
And combined with the performance of the 18.8% that the fund delivered, last year the fund actually grew in total size by 26%. Now, you'll know your CAGRs well. If we do that every year for the next three years, the fund will be £120 million. And three years from that, it'll be 240 and we'll be at our capacity. So life will never be like that, as you know. <laughs> but the point is, the combination of organic issuance alongside performance should get us to where we'd like to get. What I would also say is we're not averse to looking at inorganic opportunities if they're presented to us or we think that's something that's doable. Um, so we will look at that. But what we're not going to do, and you know, some of your investment trusts in various sectors are doing this for this very reason. This morning, when this was recorded, the Quilter had its results and it stated they had over 100 billion under management. Now, you all know that Investec and Rathbones are sort of getting together and they're going to have 100 billion under management. Now, if Rathbone and Investec managers and Quilter managers are allowed to do their own thing and not be told what to do the whole time by a central research team, want to reach out to Rockwood, fantastic. But it's highly unlikely that we'll be of, of the size of ever of interest to those books of business if you have a centralised research team where everybody's got to be able to buy the fund. So we're going to remain a niche fund for those that want to complement maybe a bigger fund that want to, you know, supercharge their UK small cap exposure. Maybe that someone that feels they've got too much of a growth bias within their fund because we're very value so we would fit quite nicely with that. And I wouldn't put all your eggs in the Rockwood basket. We've put a lot in. And just one point on that, I've bought over 1% of the trust personally, and I will continue to buy during this year. And Christopher Mills has personally bought, it's slightly diluted because of the issuance now, but just over 27% of the fund. So we are super aligned with shareholders to deliver for everybody. Just finally on that point, because I do think it's a differentiating point in relation to the competition as well, specific competition, I'm not going to call out names or the rest of it, but this is the only thing that I do. So I'm only focused on Rockwood Strategic. It's my only fund. I don't have any business responsibilities or kind of wider commercial managerial responsibilities. I don't run different other funds and oiks and other whatever, literally fully focused on this. And I'm no Warren Buffett, but if you look at the criteria that, that maybe, other than being sort of generally an outstanding stock selector and have bundles of common sense, I think some of his winning characteristics were A, having a focused fund, B, having permanent capital, and C, having a kind of free cash flow ownership mentality to his investment approach. And all of those three we have in Rockwood. So I think we've got a lot of the right criteria here to keep delivering, hopefully, over the rest of my career, frankly. <laughs> Of course, no returns come without risk. And I guess one of the things that I've observed over the years is that, particularly if you have a concentrated portfolio, if you do have one thing that goes wrong, it can sour sentiment because people then start saying, well, they talked a good game, but actually they've had a problem with this one and perhaps they're not quite as smart as they think or they've made a mess of this. And that's a risk. So in other words, a stock-specific issue can cloud sentiment. Is that something that worries you or keeps you awake at night? Basically, no. I think I've personally got used with the stock-specific risk that I run. And it's primarily because that works really badly if you're a growth investor. Because when things go wrong as a growth investor, they go really wrong. Because you've got massive rating, derating, plus the numbers are going the wrong way. 
value investing did get a bit of a tough time in the last decade and value investors were sort of seen slightly as the nutters in the room. But actually, margin of safety, where it all goes back to, is where value investors really think. And so with a lot of our holdings, I know that there's downside risks to them, but I don't feel that there is any permanent capital at risk, i.e. that they could go bust or that the business model isn't salvageable. If you know the worst would happen would be the team that is trying to salvage it don't turn out to be as good as we expect them to be, in which case we'll have to reboot and start again. I think thirdly, we have worked hard. And in one of the stocks that got taken over this year, which was a company called Smooth, and that was an example of something that didn't go according to plan. It was a software business into the conveyancing industry, trying to create a platform to speed up that awful process when you're trying to buy a house. And there, subsequent to us buying, about six to nine months later, they basically pivoted to a new business plan, which involved blowing all the cash that they had. And they had loads of net cash when we bought on developing up a new platform, which was costing all the cash. And the market didn't like it, neither did we. And we then, with our stake, we bought more. We got up to about 13% overall at Harwood in stock. Um, it's, you know, engaged with other stakeholders and that ended up being taken over. And we made a fantastic 8% return total on our money, which I say sadly and probably too jokingly, but it was, you know, that is not 15% a year. That is a very annoying, but it wasn't a, massive deterioration of our NAV as a result. So, but I would say this is that anyone buying Rockwood needs to accept that if they look through the lens of shorter time horizons, any short period will have a period where either one or two of our holdings have done particularly well and looks great. Or if we haven't had one where one's been going well, then if something goes wrong, we'll have a temporary reduction in the NAV. And then hopefully it will sort it out or gain, roll up our sleeves and reclaim that, that NAV. I guess the key point, perhaps just to finish on then, is what I think you're saying is that we all know that UK market is unloved. We know that small caps out of favour, all those things. And a lot of people get very excited about the potential for a rebound in the sector. Uh, but I think what I'm hearing for you is that you believe that you're not relying on that happening. It would be nice to have, but you're not relying on it for the reasons you've just outlined. Absolutely. Uh, it will provide an easier backdrop for it. But those periods, everyone forgets about them now. So I think this is very analogous to 2009, where we are right now. It's not been as bad as before 2009 in terms of where the world was. But in 2009, people forget that that was the year of the recession. So that was the year the economy went into recession, declined materially. But it was also the year that the smallest stocks went up 60%, literally in absolute terms that year. So the bounce back, the coiled spring could be pretty aggressive when it turns. And I maybe I leave you with this one thought, because a lot of people's minds have been on the Magnificent Seven, you know, the largest stocks in America in, in, in recent months and their fantastic performance last year. And it is quite spectacular to consider that Microsoft now's value is more than the entire cumulative value of the whole UK stock market, including BP, Shell and the rest. Is it beyond the realms of possibility to assume at some point, I don't know when that is, people go, well, actually, I might trim my Microsoft. Now, if everyone trimmed their Microsoft by 10%, and then said, oh, actually, what's the best value trade in the market? You know, what's the other side of that? And just some of that flowed back into UK equities. 
that would have massive material impact on the market. So when people are going, oh, this is how could this possibly change? It, just small changes in flows could start to create this really quite aggressive start to improvement. And also, my final point would be that there's never confidence when it starts. The market and everyone is only confident after it's been going well for a bit. At the start, they're always unconfident. And at the moment, most people seem pretty unconfident about investing in UK equities, which is the best conditions alongside low valuations for positive future returns. Well, that's certainly true from historical experience. You're quite right about that. So we kind of say, bring on the recession and then let's get this rebound happening. Absolutely. So (laughs) that was Richard Stavely, the manager of Rockwood Strategic talking to me earlier this week thank you for listening the money makers weekly investment trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels you can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.